Hi, everybody, and welcome to Martin Van Dyke Undercovers, produced in partnership with the Ann Arbor District Library. Ed Ward is an American writer and very well-known radio personality. Since 1986, he has been the rock and roll historian on the national public radio program Fresh Air, hosted by Terry Gross. In his new book, The History of Rock and Roll, Ed Ward covers the first half of the history of rock in this sweeping and definitive narrative, starting from the 1920s when the music of rambling medicine shows mingled with the songs of vaudeville and minstrel acts to create the very early sounds of country and rhythm and blues, and then to the rise of the first independent record labels post-World War II, and then concluding in December 1963, just as an immense change in the airwaves took hold and the Beatles prepared for their first American tour. The History of Rock and Roll Volume 1 shines a light on the far corners of the genre to reveal the stories behind the hugely influential artists who changed the musical landscape forever. I began my interview with Ed Ward by asking him what led to him writing a book about the history of rock and roll. What, what led to it was that for 30-odd years I've been doing this you know, rock and roll history segment on Fresh Air with Terry Gross on NPR, and uh, all along people have been saying, oh, you ought to do a book, you ought to do a book. But, you know, just reading those scripts is not very interesting. <laughs> <laughs> you may be interested in the, in the final product, but, you know, all of, the, um, all of the production notes and so forth, it just doesn't work on paper. Uh, I was, of course, trying to get a book together, um, because I was uh, out of money and stuck in uh, in Europe, um, broke, which is not a way to live there. And uh, so I I did several book proposals, all of which got um, ignored by the publishers they were sent to. And finally, I just said, well, you know, maybe I will do the book, and um, but not as a bunch of scripts, but sort of knitting together all the. Uh, things that I've learned over the years of uh, doing those short pieces. So um, I just sat down and um, got to work. <laughs> yeah, and how long did this first volume take to, to put together, Ed? It didn't take very long, actually. Um, I'd previously covered a lot of this era in um, the uh, Rolling Stone book that came out in the 80s, Rock of Ages, and uh, I was supposed to do everything up to 1960. So um, on on, on um, considering when to uh, well no uh, I I actually proposed this initially as as one volume and nobody was interested because it was just too big um, so <clears throat> a friend of mine suggested that it be split in half <clears throat> and one of the publishers that turned me down thought that was a good idea so uh, he went with it and. Uh, so I really had to only deeply research uh, between 1960 and 1963. Uh, I did, of course, go over the other stuff because 30-odd uh, years ago when I did the uh, Rock of Ages book, th there wasn't so much research and information as, as there was now. Uh, for things like the 1940s, you know, the rhythm and blues eruption in Los Angeles, I had, to, I had only one book 
<clears throat> to um, to look at, and um, it was it was inaccurate. Uh, called Honkers and Shouters by Arnold Shaw. Um, and, and there's a lot of misleading information in there. So I, uh, but by, by now there are, are loads of memoirs, biographies, and uh, even uh, surveys of various scenes. Um, there's a, a really wonderful book by R.J. Smith, that was a, a revelation to me called uh, The Great Black Way, Central Avenue in uh, Los Angeles. And I knew that Central was where everything had happened. And sure enough, it was. Go back to the beginning. It's just particularly fascinating to read about the, the early, early days before there was anything that was being recorded or called rock and roll. And back to the days of, I found this so fascinating, of, of medicine shows. And, and for, for those who have no idea what we're talking about, what were medicine shows? And how did this figure into the, the, the very, very, very early traces of rock and roll, Ed? Well, the medicine shows were um, a form of entertainment that uh, was mobile and, and went to very isolated communities, uh, mostly to sell um, fake cures for this and that, which were mostly alcohol. <laughs> um, and um, so they would come to your town and uh, they would set up a, uh, a stage, which was part of the uh, wagon that the uh, uh, show used, and they would have people up there singing and playing and, and dancing and so forth as a kind of entertainment. And once the crowd was around, the pitch man would get out there and go, I have something here that will cure your warts and cure you of alcoholism, cures cancer. You know, and then they'd sell as much of the stuff as they could and then leave town. But if you were a young person looking to hit the road and, and play music and get paid for it, it was a... You know, kind of a good career move. Didn't people like Hank Williams do things like that? Is that right? Yeah. Later on, it became a really big deal. There was a patent medicine called Hadacol, and a lot of early country music performers, I believe there was also a black Hadacol train. Hadacol had a, a whole train. Wow. A, um, you know, and they, they would go, uh, once again, to isolated rural communities and... Um, they would they would set up, but the the degree of of um, the the quality of the entertaining entertainment was uh, much higher, um, and so uh, you did get people like Hank Williams and, and Roy Acuff, and uh, a lot of other early country music stars on the Hadacall train. BB uh, King, as a matter of fact, I once semi embarrassed BB King because he um, he wrote a Hadacall song for his radio program. It was a big deal. Ah, uh, right. Well, you, you cover, of course, you know, we got to talk about some of the music from the greater Detroit area. Of course, Motown is in your book, but there might be a few other musicians that, that, that folks might not be quite as familiar with, but who are super important, uh, such as Hank Ballard and, and Ruth Brown and, and, of course, John Lee Hooker as well. Tell, tell us about your research into some of the important music from the rock and roll and pre-rock and roll era that figures in your book. Well, you know, basically what I did was I sat down with Billboard magazine uh, and, and read it like a novel whose, whose um, 
pretend I already knew. <laughs> uh-huh. So I, I watch figures emerge from the murk. I'm I'm really sorry that in this this book I didn't get more into the Flame Show Bar, and uh, as as an important venue, which uh, it was for many many years, and um, that was that was where Hank Ballard and, and uh, Ruth Brown were first discovered. And this is the Flame Show Bar in Detroit. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, Detroit was always locked into sort of a competition with Chicago, uh, which goes right down, you know, into the end of the 20th century. Uh, as far as music is concerned, it, it, it's really interesting that one of the, the conscious decisions that John Lee Hooker made was not to record in um, in Chicago, you know, and have to stand in line with all the other Chicago talent. He, he realized that there was not much in the way of blues happening in Detroit, and that he was better than anybody else there. So he stayed in Detroit and, and used that as his base. Talk about Ruth Brown a little bit, too. It's fascinating your writing about her. Well, she, she, uh, she had a very interesting career. She started off um, having been discovered by the, uh, the owner of the Flame Show Bar and uh, was soon being managed by, um, I believe, uh, Oh, no, I was going to say Lionel Hampton's wife. It might have been Lionel Hampton's wife, I, the wife of a famous, you know, pop jazz performer. I'm sorry, I, I don't have any of my books here. I'm currently homeless, and I'm uh, renting a guy's attic. All my books are in boxes. Oh, okay. um, Yeah, my house flooded. It was a oh. stupid thing, but there oh, it was. Sorry. Oh, goodness. Where Where are you living? Where are you these days? I'm, I'm in a guy's attic in Austin, uh, and my house is... Well, further south from here in Austin, but anyway, um, she uh, she started off, you know, and, and uh, she had a, a big career ahead of her, and had an automobile accident that sidelined her for a couple of years. But that was actually um, it was unfortunate that you know she was injured and all that, but it turned out to be a blessing in disguise because the public was really ready for her when she started recording. And Atlantic Records in New York, where she had signed, was really hungry for a major female star and there she was and and she it it just it took off from there Uh, she definitely provided the money that enabled atlantic to sign ray charles and and numerous of their other early artists so uh, she's a real a real fascinating person as a radio DJ, I'm very fascinated to, to read about these D, 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 DJs who were so important in the early days of rock and roll. People like Dewey Phillips and Alan Freed, uh, for those, again, who may not be familiar. Man, you, you just can't overemphasize how important DJs were in the early days of rock and roll, of spreading the gospel of the music on air. Well, it's true. A lot of them were fans who uh, really liked the music and, and went up against the management of their of their radio stations to be allowed to put on 15, 30 minutes of rock and roll or rhythm and blues. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they enjoyed a great deal of, of freedom in what they uh, were allowed to play as, as long as it wasn't filthy. They, they were allowed to play anything they wanted, and, and uh, the teenagers uh, heard it and reacted. They, they liked some of the stuff. They didn't like some of the stuff, and they knew they could tell the DJ, you know, what, what they were interested in, and that, that's why they had call-ins. 
you know, to sort of assess what the what the public was was interested in. There was certainly no research on this. The, the money wasn't enough to cause anybody to really spend a lot of time analyzing it. They, they just did it. So that, that that also plays into the payola question. I mean, you know, the the lawmakers were intent on proving that nobody would buy this garbage uh, unless the DJs were bribed to play it on the radio. Um, and as I said in the book, you know, anybody who's ever been a parent of a teenager knows that you cannot force a teenager to do anything, <laughs> let alone buy bad records. I mean, why on earth would a teenager with a limited allowance go out and buy records that he hated just because somebody was paid to play it on the radio? Ridiculous. Right, right. We had, we had so many, we had so little money back then that every purchase was was so precious. You know, I still remember going to the local drugstore to buy the you know the latest Kink single or Rolling Stones single. I still have some of those picture sleeves. We didn't have a lot of money to spend, and I I, I dare say spent that money very wisely on things that. I love not just because a, a DJ played them or was paid to to play them. Uh, one, one of your book cha- uh, chapters is 1955. Rock and roll is born. Dot dot dot. Maybe <laughs> why May of uh, why 1955? You actually choose uh, May of 1955 as a a good candidate for a moment when rock and roll was born as a major movement in American popular music. Why that month and, and year, Ed? Well, that was the uh, month and year that Little Richard recorded his uh, first session for uh, Specialty Records, and um, the the you know it was the day when in the morning they played a bunch of blues material uh, and recorded it, and it just wasn't very interesting. Uh, Richard was a sort of mediocre blues singer. He he'd previously cut records for RCA and for uh, Peacock in Houston. And uh, he, they, they didn't sell, and they weren't very good. He, he did have something of a following as a live performer because he was so outrageous. But uh, in, in terms of, of rock and roll, they, the band had, had worked on this material all morning, and, and they really were not getting anywhere. They went off to a very famous um, nightclub hotel called the Dew Drop Inn in New Orleans, and Richard saw a piano there, so he jumped up on stage and he started singing a dirty song that he uh, knew from uh, the gay bar circuit. And uh, everybody, sort of, their heads sort of snapped up and they said, well, that's what we should be doing. But Richard was really embarrassed because the lyrics were, you know, certainly not going to get played on the radio. So um, uh, Bumps Blackwell, who was supervising the session as a producer, for Art Roop, who uh, owns Specialty Records in Los Angeles, uh, Bumps said, well, you know, let's, let's rewrite the lyrics. And, and um, every time Art sent one of his guys out on the road, he had this whole uh, list of important things, you know, people you could contact for this, that, and the other thing in whatever city um, the person was going to. And, and one of the things that uh, Bumps had was the name of a, uh, a professional songwriter named uh, Dorothy Labostri. So he called her up and um, had her meet the band and Richard back at the studio. And uh, Richard was embarrassed to perform the song for her. So uh, Bumps had to tell Richard that uh, she was a married woman and she had children and she knew about sex and there's no problem. 
he should just tell her the lyrics and she'd write something that would be usable. So he went into a corner with her and whispered the lyrics to her. And a few minutes later, she uh, had rearranged things and uh, showed them to Richard. And Richard went, okay, fine. But the thing that made the rock and roll connection was that by this time, the band was really itching to get to their evening gigs. And in, f in fact, um, a couple of the horn players had already packed up. And uh, uh, and the piano player, because Richard wasn't supposed to be playing piano on the session, Huey Piano Smith was. But um, now there were just a few guys left in the studio. Earl Palmer, the drummer, um, whacked out a beat that was metronomic. It wasn't swing-oriented. You know, that, that kind of loose... Um, flow of swing it, you hear that in a lot of early rock and roll records you know like hound dog by elvis presley yeah it, it, it but but this was whack 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 and that is the template for the beat that continues to this day um you don't have fancy drumming you don't have a swing beat uh in in uh, pure rock and roll I'd have no objection to swing or any of that, but uh, I just think that this was an innovation that uh, hadn't happened before. Mm, mm. It, it, there's always the endless argument about what was the actual first rock and roll song. This this, this can never really be, can it, <laughs> solved? I mean, is, is it is it Rocky, yeah. Rocket 88? I mean, a lot of people point to that, which is from a few years earlier, right? Well, yeah, but that had a swing uh, rhythm section. Right, right. That was what was popular on the circuit that, that Ike Turner uh, was was touring in those days. And, and what he learned from the uh, the blues singers who uh, stayed in his mother's boarding house in uh, Mississippi. You know, he, he, he was after what was popular. And that, that was Ike Turner and his band, even though it got credited to Jackie Brinston. Right. And, uh, boy... It, your book also um, brings home the the danger of, of artists like Jerry Lee Lewis and, and Chuck Berry, who were um, real hellraisers and uh, kind of uh, got into a lot of trouble. And a lot of people just uh, di didn't like them for various and sundry reasons to begin with. And and uh, some of their <clears throat> some of the activities in their personal lives uh, really uh, helped to just about derail their career at times. You kind of forget a little bit how dangerous rock and roll was really really was in those early days and your book brings that oh, home right it was it was a threat to uh, white teenagers um chuck berry you know here was somebody who was actively hounded by racist policemen uh they didn't think that a light-skinned negro uh should have the kind of money and an appeal that he had and he certainly didn't help things by going after underage white uh, females. Um, and he got arrested a lot of times just for, you know, kissing a girl uh, where other people could see it. Um, he did also do other things that uh, actually, well, I don't know, he, he wound up in jail, but it was, it was such a racist trial that it had to be redone once, but they were determined to throw him in jail. Um, as for Jerry Lee, Nobody ever told Jerry Lee he couldn't do anything um, because he would just go ahead and do it anyway. Now, if that meant marrying his cousin, well, that's what he did. And if it meant that she was 12 or 13 years old, well, that was how they did it back home. 
Ed, last question, and Ed, this is admittedly a tough one, but is, is there an unsung hero, someone who you have written about in this first volume who perhaps is not that well-known either as a performer or behind-the-scenes person that it was just particularly delightful to, to write about an, an artist or a producer or a DJ to just get them in print and just, just to try and show the world that maybe some people will discover someone who you really love personally, but isn't that well-known? Well, of course, I'm noted for my love of the Five Royales, which was a uh, group from Winston-Salem, North Carolina, who um, had an amazing songwriter and guitarist uh, who was the creative force in the band and whose two lead singers, the Tanner Brothers, um, were very, very advanced and and, uh, sort of helped pioneer soul music because they'd started out as a gospel group. So the Five Royals is always on my on my list of, of people. Um, Sam Phillips, I hope I was uh, warm enough about Sam Phillips and Sun Records to drive people to Peter Goralnik's bi- biography of him, which is an excellent, excellent book uh, that shows a true Southern eccentric um, who had everything and gave it up because he'd, he'd rather um, have... Uh, He'd rather open radio stations than produce rock and roll records. Thanks for listening to Martin Bandike Undercovers and our interview with author Ed Ward about his new book, The History of Rock and Roll, Volume 1, 1920 to 1963. This has been a presentation of the Ann Arbor District Library. Wah, bah, 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 to the boot. Oh, boo.